Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below. I'm going to go ahead and get us started, and we can be finding your seats while I'm talking, which not an unusual thing. God dwells in you. Let us pray, most holy and loving God, giver of all good gifts. We thank you today for two feet on the ground, for breath in our lungs, for the sun shining and a clear day. And we thank you for raising up among us truth tellers who will reflect us back to ourselves. We ask you to be strongly present in this hour and help us to be present to you. Help us to hear your voice in our hearts, in the space between words, and on the lips of one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Welcome. If you are new here at All Saints or are visiting us this morning and would like to be kept up to date about future events, first of all, hi, my name is Mike Kinman. I'm the rector here. Um, there are green contact sheets near both doors. Please take a moment just to sign up and give us your contact information. Uh, also at the welcome table on the lawn, you can pick up a red welcome bag, which includes a welcome card for you to fill out and return, or you can fill it out on the spot. It's a great way for us all to stay connected to let you know about everything that's going on here at, at All Saints Church. Uh, at all times, we put our faith into action here at All Saints. Every week, we focus that uh, into one or two specific actions. Um, this week, we are having an action around sanctuary cities. Sanctuary cities are those that have adopted a policy of protecting unauthorized immigrants by not prosecuting them for violating federal immigration laws. They ensure that all residents have access to city services, regardless of immigration status. Uh, today, we're asking everyone to write to our state senators to express our support for SB 54, which is called the California Values Act, which would protect the safety and well-being of all Californians by assuring that state and local resources are not used to fuel mass deportations, to separate families, or to divide Californians on the basis of race, gender, sexual orientation, religion, immigration status, or national or ethnic origin. It would essentially uh, declare all of our cities uh, sanctuary cities. So please visit the action table. Uh, is that set up by the door over there? I think we have someone there by the door. Oh, we've got someone by the door uh, or on the lawn to sign this important letter. Uh, finally, everything that we do here on All Saints is, at All Saints is fueled by two things. It's fueled by the grace of God, and it's fueled by the grace of God through the generosity of all of you, and by you, I mean you who are streaming with us online as well. Uh, and so please consider a, a gift to All Saints Church to keep uh, the ministry that we have here happening. Uh, God is putting huge challenges in front of us this year, uh, challenges that are going to send us out into the world in new and powerful ways. And God never puts that stuff in front of us without giving us the resources to do it. Um, and a lot of times that resource is right here in us. So uh, please consider making a gift. If you've already made one, consider making an additional one. If you are streaming with us online, 
There's a little donate button right there that you can click on. And please click on that and make a gift to All Saints Church. Um, Today is an absolute joy and pleasure for me uh, because we get to welcome Amy Hunter here to, to All Saints Church here in Pasadena. Amy is someone that I got to know particularly my last two or three years in St. Louis. And as I wrote earlier this year, uh, when I first met Amy, I didn't like her. Uh, I was part of something called Leadership St. Louis, and she did, it was a, a group of leaders from all over the country, and we had uh, various weekends that we studied aspects of St. Louis, and we had a weekend on race. Um, and Amy wasn't about making people like me feel comfortable. And I didn't like feeling uncomfortable. Uh, and it took me a while to realize what an incredible gift she was giving me in putting me in a place of discomfort. Uh, and, and, and we have gotten to know each other better in, in, in those years. And uh, I have experienced Amy as someone who, uh, there's not an ounce of BS in her. Uh, and she is a truth teller. And so when I found out that we were bringing her here, uh, basically all I said is, what do you think a congregation like ours needs to hear? And, and she came up with the title, Things White People Don't Know, which in my experience is a pretty broad topic. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to go ahead and sit down and ask you to give a warm welcome to Amy Hunter. That is hilarious. The lady who was sitting next to asked me how long we were going to be here. Yeah, so... <laughs> It's a long list. I could add on and on. So I will, I will tell you, so um, my name is Amy Hunter. Um, usually I say I'm the only black Amy you know because it makes people remember my name. I know, and like all the white people go like, is that a white people name? <laughs> it is. So my parents were worried about us getting jobs. Um, so race has been a part of my life since I was born. And so they named us names that they thought we could at least get an interview with. Yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of the moment, and I start often with that because um, sometimes we think, like, we'll, we'll figure this out later on in life, and there are these moments that we have that we just kind of erase and think as normal or natural, but are not normal or natural. So the day your child is born, to think about the ways that race will affect their lives um, just shouldn't be. And so um, you should be able to name your kid whatever you want. Um, when I'm all at Black Space, um, I get different questions about my name, like, am I adopted? Is my mother white? <laughs> it's quite entertaining. <laughs> so since you all didn't know any of that, um, I'm not adopted. Both of my parents are black. It was just a job security kind of moment. So I'm actually going to take a minute um, for you to uh, get to know each other. I know you're probably used to people talking to you. I'm not that person, though. Um, I like people to be engaged with one another. And so I will ask you to turn to a person. Oh, let me, let me clarify. So my mother was an ex-nun married to the son of a Baptist preacher. <laughs> and now you can't make this stuff up, y'all. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we played church at home in Mary many different ways. Um, so this, this will be from my Baptist side of the, of the family. Um, I want you to find your neighbor. And then I want you to, everybody have a neighbor, somebody? Take a hold of somebody. I'm going to ask you to do something with a person. So you actually need to touch just one person. One person. 
If you do not have a person, raise your hand. We have singles. All right. All right, everybody got somebody? If you don't have somebody, raise your hand high so we can see. Okay, there was somebody, oh, that guy on the end. Black and white on the end. All right, is everybody listening? No. Oh, good. All right, I need y'all to listen. I don't have a lot of time. Ready? Waterfall, waterfall, shh. Okay. Um, there's at least one person that does not have uh, a partner. Is there another person that doesn't have a partner? Okay, man standing up. There's a guy right there. And I saw at least one other hand. There's one here. Oh, can you go to this guy over here? Yeah. All right. Anybody else? He's coming to you in blue. Do you see him with his hand up? He's your partner. All right. All right, I want you to gaze in the eyes. This, is, this activity is done in complete silence. Ready? I want you in complete silence to gaze in the eyes of the person you are sitting next to for one minute. I'll, complete silence. Waterfall, waterfall, shh. So I actually saw this as an art installation and immediately said this has everything to do with diversity. Yeah, I'm really clear that what is wrong is that we are not connected. And I want you to notice the ways in which you might have been scripted to not be seen and notice that that is not our purpose on here on earth is to be invisible, right? Our, our purpose here is to show up. Yeah, I want you to notice the ways of just one minute of someone looking into your eyes. What a difference that makes, yeah. I'm really clear that we are in the posi position we are in right now 
particularly with a political situation, because we are not close. And I'm really clear that if we got close, it would be different going forward. Because it isn't enough to hear whatever my story is. What is really important is to hear everyone's story and everyone's side. And so one of the things that I talk to white people a lot about is falling in love with other white people. So it isn't really a choice for people of color, uh, because in a system of oppression, we have to act like we like pe white people, even if we don't. Yeah, we do. Yeah, that's, that's true. So it's, it's less of an option. It's more of our socialization and scripting, because in order for us to survive and navigate the systems and the worlds that we will face, there will have to be some of that, yeah? Um, but it, is, it feels very optional for white people to not like each other, not to fall just deeply, madly in love with one another. And I would like to offer that it's really not an option. That dividing ourselves into the good white people and those other white people is really not helpful or useful to anyone. It definitely isn't useful to people of color. And so I would offer, if you just start with the premise that all white people are good, I know the white people always laugh at that one. <laughs> like, do you know my people? I'm like, I do. <laughs> I know them. But what I actually believe is that we are born. I, think, I want everyone to think about a baby you've seen recently or someone in your family. That baby is just so good. Yeah, nothing wrong with them. Just, wow, just breathtakingly wonderful, right? They come with things they don't even need, like fingernails and eyebrows, right? They come with that kind of stuff. And we were all those babies. And then something happened to us. And we call that the cycle of socialization. And, and so it is the, the lie here in this conversation is that we don't need each other. But I can guarantee you, we come into the world needing each other with very little apologies. We cry when we're hungry, right? And if you are fortunate to live a very long life, you will leave this world needing people. The only lie was the in-between part. The truth is we need each other now. We always need each other. And so I would offer, if we spent more time gazing into each other's eyes and falling in love, not just the work that needs to be done, but the what needs to be done makes it just that much simpler, that much easier, right? So in my head, when people are saying crazy stuff to me, because I do diversity work for a living, they say all kind of crazy things to me. My first thought is, I'm sorry that happened to you. Because what you just said, I'm willing to bet, has made people not like you, has not brought people closer to you, and it's not your fault that it happened to you. And so instead of getting you know, irate or rolling my head or whatever, I lean in with love and offer some guidance and assistance so that you can have a big, wonderful life all the time. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's how I want you to treat all the other people you're going to fall in love with at the end of this. Um, but let's talk about a little bit about stuff white people get. Um, one of my favorite ones is hotel shampoo, because I travel a lot. Yeah, I know. I just, I thought everybody knew this, but apparently it's kind of popular that I say it, so I'm going to say it. So white people get free shampoo when they go to hotels. I think it would be really great if every time I checked into a hotel, they got me hair supplies for free, like some oil, you know, especially because you travel. Like they had like maybe an ethnic kit, you know? I think it would be great. I mean, yeah. It, like don't do the two-in-one shampoo conditioner. I can't use that on my hair. I, I need a separate, and I need like good conditioner, you know, not the, and so just noticing like 
it, we think it's like all of these like really extreme things, right? Like, so we could talk about white people get jobs, right? And it historically have been getting jobs that black and brown people couldn't get for years, right? Um, but if we think about just the day in and day out things it, that really make your life just that much easier and better, sometimes it is the, the smallest of things for convenience that we take for granted or think everybody gets. So how many of the white people knew that like black and brown people probably shouldn't use the shampoo in the hotel? Okay, but look around, y'all. They're like 10 hands up. Yeah? Probably need to have some conversations going forward. Um, I talk a lot about housing, um, mostly because it has intergenerational wealth attached to it. So the places in which people could inherit resource and land access to housing is really important. So it, and it minimizes or, or takes some of the sting away from I worked really hard for what I got. Um, so um, where I live, Black people could not move into certain spaces. We actually had racial covenants as late as 1970 written into our housing deeds. So the house that I grew up in, which was an all-white space, was actually bought by a front. My father was an executive at a company, but they would not sell it to a black person. So someone from his office went. My parents did not actually see the inside of the house until they had already purchased it. That was in 1968. Yeah, wasn't that long ago. And so noticing that even though we don't say it's happening, it's still happening, right? So think about your neighbors who are only selling to their family members who look like them. So it's still, no, it's not in the D technically, but if it's still kind of happening, it's still happening, right? Not to mention the money that you get upon the, the sale. Um, I'm gonna have just one intersectional moment because I know you all just did the Women's March. We did it in St. Louis as well. Um, pay equity. We often quote the 76 cents on the dollar or 78 cents on the dollar. I'm going to offer that's white women. I actually believe women working together would be like super uber cool, like rock star awesome for a couple of reasons. I, I, I think women are smart. Uh, I think we're pretty organized. I think we're loving, right? Ferguson popped off. I've yet to meet a woman who thought the tear gas thing was a great idea. Yeah. I've not yet one, met one woman who was like, oh, there's a crowd. Let's see if we get some uh, armored cars and tear gas and rubber bullets out. Let's buy some new SWAT gear, guys. Like, yet to meet one woman who thought that was a great idea, right? And so just noticing if women could work across racial lines, how much further faster we would be as people. But we keep missing it. We missed it with the suffrage movement. We missed it with ERA. We missed it with civil rights. I'm offering now could be our time to work together. But we're gonna have to use language that is more inclusive. So 76 cents on the dollar actually isn't inclusive language. Women of color aren't even close to that. And we could actually fight for it all, like we're trying to get to a dollar. Does that make sense? Yes. And so instead of being like, yay, it's improved four cents in 40 years, we could be like, hey, we need our dollar, right? Like all of us. Um, I'm going to tell you the things that people won't ever tell you. Um, names is one of them. Um, yeah. So in the U.S., white dominant culture, nicknames, if my name is Kathleen, often I will get a nickname like Katie or Kate, and it's a way of being endearing. It means I like you, love you. That rule doesn't actually translate across racial lines, though. So if my name is Shinka Shea and you call me Shea, not only have you disrespected me, you've disrespected my mother. We have nicknames too, they just often don't go with our name. <laughs> like my uncle Pete's real name is William and he's married to my Aunt Jean whose real name is Martha. <laughs> I 
I'm saying this out loud because often we think whatever culture we're in, we think is the actual rule. And I'd like to offer that other cultures, even within the United States, have different rules. And so I will give you another example of that, which is time. In US white culture, time has meaning. It means you're reliable, dependable, and really it is a culture of early. On time is only 60 seconds. In Spanish, I miss the bus literally translates the bus left me. The global majority actually sees time as much more fluid. It doesn't have all of that meaning. We just made that part up, y'all. And so I would just say a couple of things. If time is really important to you, you probably need to tell people that really you want them to come early or actually on time instead of getting upset when they're 15 minutes late or an hour late. If I'm having a party at my house at seven and you come at seven, you're helping me get ready. <laughs> That's not why I gave you the time. I gave you the time so you knew what time to come after. Yeah, because it's fluid, right? So like the stuff isn't put up at 10. Yeah, if there are people still at my house, we still have stuff. And if you come at the door at 10, we greet you like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you made it. I mean like, where, where have you been? You're we, don't, we don't do that, right? Because relationships are really important, not the transaction, right? Two different cultural norms. So in black space, I usually say you have about three questions to ask me. In US white culture, asking questions is transactional. It's how I get to know you. So you'll go to a party, they'll ask you like, how do you know the host? I'm like, this is crazy. Aren't we all friends of the host? Like, how do we get invited to this party? Like, why are we doing this, right? But in US culture, they're trying to get to know you, right? So they're gonna ask you a ton of questions. That doesn't work across cultural lines. If you have a relationship with me, I'll probably answer any question you have. But first, we, we, we form a relationship, then we ask questions. Does that make sense? Often I say this is because people are mostly afraid that they will not be liked or loved. This, again, is a white people thing. White people care about whether or not they're liked. I find this quite interesting. Paul Kivel, a, a race scholar, has actually done work on this. Uh, so not just Amy Hunter. If you need to research it, I know sometimes people need other people. I'll quote a couple other scholars for you all to write down. Paul Kivel's done really good work on it, though. People of color don't walk around thinking people are gonna like them. It's quite funny, actually. Um, almost even the opposite, right? And so just notice that that's your need to be liked. I'm gonna cure you of this need and just offer we already like you. Like what if you walked around the whole world as if you were going to be liked? Now, really this comes from uh, familial patterns of an in and out culture. It has nothing to do with people of color. It has more to do with your family. So in majority white US culture, there are these rules or customs or perceived thoughts and feelings about how you get in or out of your family. This also doesn't translate. I, I can't even imagine what you could do in my family for us to kick you out. Like nothing. Like, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've really tried. Like if you went to like jail, I was like, well, then we'd have a party for you coming out of jail, I guess. I mean. <laughs> You'd be gone, you wouldn't be out. I mean, you know, like, you know, we'd be shamed, but you know, like out for, I mean, you know, just, there wasn't a whole lot of things, right? And so, you know, just noticing like that is a thing. Um, and so I'm gonna offer you that if we're gonna get really close, we're gonna have to have a commitment with each other not to push each other out. So I often say, instead of calling white people out, we like to call them in, yeah. It isn't our fault what happened to us. These things get installed very early on when we're children. And so it isn't our fault that it happened. It is our responsibility as adults to, to actually work towards the kind of world we'd like to see, though. Does that make sense? All right. And dream big. You know, people are like, oh, I just want to. No, no. 
bigger, dream bigger. Like, what would it really look like? Um, speaking um, in African-American and, and other cultures of color, um, we say hello to each other. We acknowledge each other with a smile or head nod. It is a sign of respect. It doesn't really mean hi. I mean, it means hi, but it means more than hi. It means I see you. You are human. Now, I say this, and I, I like white people because they're like, okay, should I talk to all the black people? Like, I mean, you, you don't have to, like, do a formal hi. Just, like, a, like it's, it's a very quick thing, you know, because when I'm walking with my white friends, they're like, you know so many people. I'm like, I don't know those people. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know them. They're, they're just black people. I walk by, I'm like, you know. It's, it's good. It's like my favorite part about being black. Let me be clear. This is my very favorite part. Like anywhere I am, like walking down the street and like. It's good. It's good. It's good. You should try it. Now, I don't, I don't do this to white people because I understand it's not part of their culture. They do have a culture around speaking if you are wealthy or important. Yeah, you get a last name and you are often not ignored. So it's not like you don't have a culture of it. I'm just naming what the culture looks like. Does that make sense? All right, good deal. Um, the last thing that white people get is um, stuff for you. Uh, flesh tone, suntan, pantyhose. Like, I just think it'd be cool to buy makeup at Walgreens personally, like anywhere I am in the United States, um, instead of going to Sephora, which is much more expensive. All right, uh, really quickly, there's some words that don't translate across race, so I'm gonna briefly talk about those. Community is one of them. Oftentimes when white people are talking about community, they're talking about neighborhood. Community has a much broader, uh, words for people of color. It could mean where my mother lives, the church to my sorority. I mean, it could be a bunch of stuff outside of a neighborhood. So that word doesn't translate across race. Culture doesn't translate across race, right? So when we're talking to white people about culture, they're like, we don't have one. You do have one. Um, it is really just kind of peeling back what that actually looks like, right? So I mentioned time, I mentioned speaking, I mentioned uh, smiling. If you go outside of the United States, they think it's funny that Americans smile. They think it's very false and it's, it's just a funny phenomenon, but it is a cultural phenomenon. Does that make sense? So just getting to notice what it is. Um, good has coded language. Hair is something that doesn't translate across race. I know. Um, so there's no hair touching. Just we're going to put that out there. You may not touch my hair. Yeah. I know you're curious, but <laughs> you're not going to do that. You're not going to do that. Yeah, it comes in different textures. It's yeah, it is interesting. Yeah, we're not, no touching of the hair though. Um, the other part is about hair combing. So part of the conversation that we have privately but don't have publicly is if you have uh, children of mixed heritage or African-American heritage and you are not combing their hair, it's not kept, there is a perception that you are not loving them. So it's, it's not just about the kind of hair you have, it's that love looks like I sat this child, daughter, in between my legs, we had this beautiful conversation about how wonderful she was as I was trying to get that part exactly straight for my people. And her hair looks nice. It is a, it is a sign or a symbol of care. It is, it's not just about hair. So I, I thought I would help you all out with that. And then fear. Um, fear doesn't translate across race because what we are afraid of is different. I'm more afraid of what will happen if we do nothing. It is why I was active in Ferguson. I had nothing to lose. I wasn't afraid of being tear gassed. I wasn't even afraid of being killed. What I was afraid of is getting a phone call that my son had been the next one. That's what I was afraid of. And so just understanding what fear looks like. And then the last one is love. Um, I honestly think we should probably work a little harder across the lines of race to really fall in love with each other. Not like a kittens and puppies love, 
but the kind of love you want to wake up to, the kind of love when it walks in the door you're smiling at, like that kind of love. And that doesn't translate across race very often. And if there was something I wanted us to work on, it would definitely be there. Things that white people don't know about education is honors classes and AP and gifted programs are also often racially based. Your child really is not that smart. I thought I would tell you that today. <laughs> They're not. In the city that I live in, uh, the school district, the high school is 90% African-American. The honors classes are 90% white. Even I went up to the school and said, you don't honestly believe all the white people are brilliant. And none of the black people are. Not like two or three, right? And so just noticing like how we use these tools in the system of education, not to mention our curriculum, our teaching staff, which is not always culturally competent um, in the system of education and how that hinders the progress we'd like to make. Zoe Burkholder is a race scholar that talks about the use of the white box and how we implemented it in the system of education here in the United States to groom white children and how to check the box. So prior to the box of white, there were ethnicities that came under that box. When we started talking about land distribution and things that you would get because of your identification around race, um, the box was created and we used the system of education. Margaret Mead was one of the scholars that worked on colorblind rhetoric, which we're still fighting today. She apologized many years later, but it's, it's up there. Does that make sense? So noticing race in schools is really, really important and who is represented and who has citizenship statuses. My latest and greatest uh, ex um, new job has been in healthcare. I talk a lot about trauma-informed care with a racialized perspective. I've said publicly and I will say today, trauma-informed care has become the newest pimp on poverty. I've seen it's now replacing character education. We cannot talk about why children of color are traumatized without talking about the systems that are leading to the trauma or how the system of education in particular might not only be triggering, but re-traumatizing children. So if a child is walking into a space and they are never learning anything positive about people who look like them, never hearing anything positive about how brilliant they are, and having some teacher tell them that they're there to do something other than to coach and groom the brilliance they were born with, it is traumatic. And so I ask our trauma-informed care people and all of our educators to look inward, not outward. Um, we act like poverty is this new phenomenon for people of color. So let me help you out here. There's never been a point in US history where all the black people were rich and now they're poor. That would be traumatic. Black people in America have always been poor. Why is this a new, oh, they're poor, this is traumatic. I'm like, well, you know, we've been, we've been working through this, right? Why are we still where we are? Why are we landlocked into certain spaces, right? Why can't we buy houses in certain places? Why is this? How has the housing market and jobs affected intergenerational opportunities for black and brown people, right? So I work in healthcare, and then when I look around at the presidents of hospitals across the country, I could almost name the black and brown presidents. We know that employment drives down crime. This is not something that's magical. It is something that is proven. And so if we are truly trying to get people out of poverty, employment would be one of the ways that we do that. Does that make sense? That means that all kids are going to have to be able to take their books home, that one-to-one -one should be normal language that we are using going forward, that we make it happen. In St. Louis, where I am from, out of the 25 top zip codes, we have three. This is not about money. We know how to do good schools. 
we know how to do this and we know how to do healthcare. So one of the things that we have to talk about is mental health as it looks in brown and black spaces. That means we probably need to stop over medicating um, and under medicating kids of color that we need to take a real look at what that looks like going forward, that we need to get services. If I got to have it any way that I wanted, every school resource officer would be replaced by a therapist or two. And they would also support the teachers, not just the children. So it has to be a real conversation that we have. The last thing I will say is about law enforcement. So I've said this before, and I will say it actually in the next session. Law enforcement cannot be property managers. They cannot just be moving people's bodies and limiting people's freedoms from going in spaces and places. They have to actually be people that protect and serve. I mentioned that my activism in Ferguson um, led me to do a lot of things. Uh, one was to actually get tear gas several times, which I don't recommend necessarily. Um, but it was the what. And so three days after Michael Brown was killed in St. Louis, I was asked to speak in front of a church, kind of like this church, just with more black people. And that was funny. And uh, <laughs> I know, I, I'm just funny by nature, I hate to tell you. But I told a story that I had not told in 10 years prior to that moment. And I had not told the story because every time I told the story, I cried. And um, the, the story hit the wire, which it took me about four days to figure out why it was news. So I am, I'm the mother of four. God has a sense of humor. I had twins first. <laughs> yeah, I don't gamble or drink for this reason. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's really true. I'm like, I know I'm really lucky. I had two kids on the first try. Um, but when our boys were about uh, 10, so we had had this conversation, much like my parents had had um, having boys, we had a conversation about when we were going to have the conversation with our sons to give them the talk. And we had decided, my husband and I had decided that we would give them the talk when they got to be as tall as I am. And I am five feet tall. So they were just 10. <laughs> it didn't take long to get to be five feet tall. Um, and so we sat our boys down, Andrew and Ashton, and we gave them the talk about what to do, what to expect. And we said the things that you have now heard probably over and over again since this moment two years ago. And they agreed at 10. They shook their heads in agreement. We told them, you know, this is not the time to stand up for yourself. This is not the time to express your civil rights. This is not time to be indignant. This is not time to question law enforcement. We need you to do whatever they say, no matter what they say. We need you to do whatever they say, because we want you to come home. We don't want to identify your body. We don't want to sit on the front pew. We want you to come home. We will handle whatever happens after that, as long as you can get to us. And so at the age of 12, my son Ashton was stopped by the police. He had been dropped off uh, in a neighborhood. Uh, we live in a college town uh, where there are shops and stores. Uh, in the middle of the day, beautiful day, and his friends were drinking. And so he decided to leave his friends and walk home maybe a mile away from there. And on his way home, he was stopped by the police at the age of 12. And so he came home and he was flustered. He had remembered what we said, but he was flustered. And so he starts asking me questions. He said, I don't, I don't understand. Like I, I, I'm wearing Sperry topsiders and khakis and a polo shirt. It's tucked in. I have my belt on. Because in his mind, as long as he looked a certain way, what we told him was going to happen wouldn't happen because he was 12 years old so he's trying to make sense of this and at 12 years old I knew and then he knew what he was wearing would not matter and so we asked a bunch of questions is it because of my race is it because I'm black and I said you know what Ash Ashton I don't I don't know maybe 
he asked so many questions that day. And it was his last question that got me. So he looked at me and he said, Mommy, I just want to know how long this will last. And I looked at my 12-year-old son and said, for the rest of your life. I went to Ferguson, Missouri, because I don't want that to be true anymore. I actually don't want us to have to have the conversations with our children and then to have the answer that I had to give my kid that day. I think we could change it, not just in law enforcement, but in education and in healthcare in every place that we are, but we have to be not only deeply committed, but we have to be deeply connected with one another. And so I ask that you do this work, not for me and my kid, but now that you've heard my story, if I called and told you something happened to one of my children, you would grieve too. And so I need us to act like it's our kid out there on the line. And if you know anything about mommies, we fight like hecky do for a kid, right? Like seven or eight times getting tear gas, getting shot with, you know, right? I'm willing to do that because I would rather die fighting for my children to be free than to live watching them be captive. So um, I often use a word that's called fictive kinship. It just means that um, we're related to each other. So black people do this all the time. White people do it too. It just looks different. Um, and yeah, they do. How many of you all have a, a man or a woman in your life you're not biologically related to, but they're, they're like your brother or sister? Okay. That is, there's a scholarship word for that. It's called fictive kinship. So I'm going to assume that we're all family now and in this fight together. Yeah. Let's make this happen, y'all. Thank you. We actually have a couple minutes for questions. Val go, Valerie. Valerie's right there. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here and for speaking truth. When I woke up this morning, I saw a Facebook post from our Senator Holly Mitchell, who's here in California, as well as dear friends who were posting about uh, Tashara Jones, who's yeah. running for mayor. And I'd like to know what we on this side of the country might be paying attention to in regards to her editorial piece, which I thought was quite provocative. Yeah, uh, so Tashara Jones, sorry, local politics for a second. Tashara Jones is in St. Louis. She's running for mayor. She's an African-American woman. She would be our first African-American woman mayor. She is the most qualified candidate out of all of the other candidates. Um, but the men have been coming for her quite um, heavily. Um, you can imagine in a sexist society, anytime she stands up for herself, she's labeled. Um, and so writing her editorial piece was actually like not just smart but brilliant um, way to get her, her voice out there. Um, our platforms have been largely on crime. So if you hear her um, opponents, they're talking about reducing crime and being tough on crime, which of course has played really well in the US. Um, my favorite part about um, who she is and what she's done for our city so far is that um, as our treasurer, she's opened a savings account for every child in our public school system. That's pretty cool. Yeah, she's using the parking meter surplus. So, you know, like when you get a ticket. I mean, I pay my tickets with like dignity now, right? I'm like, well, 
it's $15, but it's going to college, right? And so I, I, I think we need right, thoughtful leaders that are thinking about really creative ways to get to where we really want to go and not just pandering kind of for their own popularity. Um, so she's, she's a kid of a politician, um, but she definitely should win. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm on her team. I'm canvassing for her. I'm, I gave her some of my money. So um, I'm definitely on, my team, on her team. But I think it is going to take those um, not just brave um, voices, but really strong voices to make a difference. And, and strategy-wise, I think that's the other part I really appreciate it. It's not like, I hope this happens. It's like, no, let's like really figure out a way to make this happen. Where's the research that says, you know, kids that have even $5 in a savings account are more likely to go to college and kids without. And so for her to set that up for literally thousands of children, um, not only increases our employment, our employment opportunities, but the people we can hire, you know, in years to come, um, but we get to be a smarter, better, better community. So if there's, I mean, donate, 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 donate. She needs money. Um, Lida Cruzan, the white woman who's running against her, has lots and lots of money. She lives in a very affluent part of town. She has like her four black friends that are all in her commercial. And yeah, but you know, you can imagine, you know, the, the men are little, you know, it's, it's, um, politics are still very male dominated. So um, they're having a bit more of an ease kind of even navigating. They've targeted her on her gender, who she's dating. I mean, you, anything you can think of, um, she's had to do it. So if you can get behind a candidate and donate to her, I would strongly recommend it. Her name's Tashara Jones and she's amazing. Go ahead. Thank you. Hi. Um, when you were talking about family, it's, it brought up a lot for me because you focus so much on connection. And I'm just wondering, so families are not perfect institutions. And I'm reading a book right now, um, and it's from a feminist perspective, that essentially classism, racism, all of these things are actually family-based systems where you, um, you have a loyalty to the people in this community. And if you're in a system of power, then that means that your loyalty is to those people at the exclusion of others and you maintain your power that way. Um, and I'm wondering what it means for you to have a community or a connection that, um, like we can say in this room that we're all family, but like we actually, I mean, staring into someone's eyes is different from hearing what they have to say. And so I'm wondering how those, I mean, you do this all the time, how those conversations go and how you produce a loving community. Because families can exclude people's families can shun people, families, contributed to the way the system is now. Yeah, so I actually started a group uh, in St. Louis prior to Ferguson, but it took off after Ferguson called Witnessing Whiteness. It's just for white people. And um, it's for white people to talk to other white people about racism so that people of color aren't always, you know, doing this grief porn kind of moment, you know, telling our sad stories so white people can learn something, right? I was like, white people are actually smart enough to get this. But one of the things that I noticed from the white people that I was working with is they're like, well, it's just so cool. Like you walk into a room and you're like friends with all the black people immediately when you get there and like you guys all know each other. And remember, we don't all know each other, right? But what I explained to them is that you can actually have this too, but you have to work on decolonization, which looks like community building. And there are... Two things that I say. One is, you know, if you catch you, uh, if you if you bounce, I'll catch you. I I say that a lot. Like people are gonna people are gonna mess up, right? I mess up. People are gonna mess up. We're not perfect people. Um, a lot of the forgiveness really is for ourselves, not for the other person, right? We we know this part. But what the other thing that I say often, and I say it pretty often, is there is nothing you could do to make me love you less. Nothing. There's not a racist thing you can say to me. There's not. I'm not confused about how good you are. 
And I think that has got to be the commitment that we have. We are used to falling in love with people who look like us. We're not used to falling in love with people who don't look like us. And part of that is because, you know, what has happened here around race in particular in America has made the dehumanization of people necessary in order to have colonization, right? So in order to justify our inhumane treatment of people, we have to make them less human, right? So we, we talk about lynching pictures all the time. If you look at a real lynching picture, there are people standing behind and often they're smiling, often they're children. Right? So I have to think of what did I have to say to my kid to make a human body hanging from a tree okay? And how does that spread throughout generations, right? Because when I think about mass incarceration, I don't have anybody in my family who's ever been incarcerated. But because those are my brothers and sisters, those are people who look like they could be in my family, I want to cry every time I think about it. And that has to be where we are. We have to work on decolonization because it is the structures. We go to this individual place and I really want us to like, we're all good. So stop the individual part, right? That's a, that's a luxury of colonization is to only have to think about yourself and how you're moving through the world. If we're really gonna make systemic and institutional change, we have to like decolonize this. So that means that Hillary Clinton didn't win and I was at a conference actually speaking the day after um, DT won, I don't say his name. And, um, you know, and I was at, I was at all white conference. I was doing a white solidarity. I was the speaker for the white solidarity part of the conference. I know. <laughs> but what what I said is, are you upset because your colonizer didn't win? Yeah. Because if we're talking about really creating something new, we actually have to create something new, right? So it isn't enough that you know. Kids are going to the hospital and some get, kids are getting treated better than others or your loved one. It has to be something new. It means that what we are fighting for, we are deeply entangled with each other around and not just our own personal interests, right? Um, my next talk is on Palestine, but they're my people. And so we have to expand the notion of just the biological people being your family. Because if I was telling you whoever got shot last night was your people, how we respond to that and, and I'm gonna say this really quickly, is that sometimes we're afraid that we're gonna never stop grieving. And what I will tell you is that that has never been true. But if you don't grieve the loss of something, you can't fight for what you'd actually like to see. You're, you're still stuck in your grief. How many people have ever seen somebody and they're still stuck in their grief? And all you want for them is joy? Because you know joy comes next. So if we could get less afraid of being afraid and more excited about being in love, in real terms of love, we would move in such a spirit that, that fear would not impede our progress, that fear does not get in our way, and, so, and that our family is our family. And we don't ask them to be perfect, right? I had two parents. They were broken people. They came from broken people, right? I'm a mother of four. I'm sure they're probably going to need some therapy later. I did the best I could, you know? It's all you get. I, I did the very best that I could, you know? And I, it's not over, right? We're still here. I'm still going to work on it. But, like, we have to make a commitment to stay with one another. And I think that's been the difference. I think we feel like we've had a luxury to leave each other, and instead we have to stay in the fight and stay together. And that, yeah. So we gotta we gotta head out. Uh, Eleven fifteen service is starting soon. Stick around afterwards in Sweetland Hall at twelve thirty for for more of Amy. And thank you. Can we give her another expression of our gratitude?
Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Marrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below.